0: And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together. Lord, we we are delighted To come together as your people, not only to celebrate the work you have done, but to right now, in this moment, hear you address us. God, you are speaking to us through your word proclaimed. So God, may our hearts be opened wide to receive the healing of your message for us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's nothing quite like a well Planned and well-executed surprise. There was a Valentine's Day episode of The Cosby Show in which the men of the family uh, secretly make a pact. They, they make a bet to see who can give their wife the most romantic gift for under twenty-five dollars. Well, the wives find out about this and they are not happy. And so they agree that they will remain unmoved and unimpressed by their husbands' gifts. Uh, Well, the two daughters cave under the romance and they fall into their husband's arms. But then it's time for Cliff Huxtable, played by Bill Cosby, to present his gift. And he begins by saying, Many years ago, a young teenage boy walked with his girlfriend to the drugstore to share a soda. And the drugstore had a wooden barrette with a glass stone in the center. And she admired that barrette, but the young boy had no money to buy it. But for tonight's occasion, I was fortunate, and I called, and I called, and I found a collectible store that had that same wooden barrette with the glass stone in the center. But Mrs. Huxtable is not impressed. <laughs> and she says, I never wanted the beret." Eunice Chantilly wore that barrette, and I said that it was tacky. What I wanted was the green plastic bracelet, Cliff, and not that tacky beret. And she tears open the box, and sure enough, it's the green plastic bracelet. He had her. And I think that's what we find in our text this morning. God is full of surprises. For his people. Verse 1 of chapter 9 begins by saying, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then we just read verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. How did we get here? How in the span of one chapter do you move from the most discouraging day To what appears to be a most encouraging day. This is a peculiar path to peace. But this is always the case with Christianity. Here's what I want you to see from God's word this morning. And not only see it, but I want you to feel it. And it's this. Jesus is redemptively surprising. And so believers should never be hopeless. First, Jesus is utterly surprising. You cannot predict what he's going to do. You can't simply extrapolate the data. You know, you have a data point here, and then you have a data point here. And so engineering minds, like our senior pastors, they want to be able to draw a line and say, the next data point's going to be down here. But you can't do that. In this passage, the line is drawn across the graph in the opposite direction. What I want us to see is that Jesus is always doing stuff like this. In fact, the message of Christianity is built upon unexpected paradoxes that we'll look at. The way up is down and you lose your life in order to find it. But second, Jesus is not just surprising in a haphazard, arbitrary way. You know, whimsically orchestrating events in order to give us whiplash. This is not Alice in Wonderland. No, he is redemptively surprising. He is surprising for our redemption, for our rescue, for our good. He is after our peace. And so at no point in the history of the church or in our personal lives do we have reason to be hopeless. And I think there are three of these kinds of surprises that our text Gives us the first is this the criminal Jesus is the Son of God, and his chief persecutor is his most famous follower. Verse 20 And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, verse 20 may not seem like a surprising statement to us, because we are Christians. And at this point in the book, we've already seen the high view of Christ that it presents But this is actually the first time that the book of Acts refers to Jesus as the Son of God. It's the only time that it refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And this is the first time that we see the newly converted Saul publicly making this profession. And there are two things that are striking about this. He's preaching in the Jewish synagogues. And he's speaking about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who was notoriously crucified as a criminal and blasphemer. And he's looking these Jews in the eye and with a straight face he's saying, this Jesus is the Son of God. You know, we might not always realize how radical of a claim this is. Paul himself would later write that Christ Crucified as a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Roman crucifixion was reserved for the most reviled of criminals of the Boston Marathon Bomber variety. The fathers would use those who died on the cross as a teaching lesson for their children of the kind of people that they mustn't grow up to be. And for Jews, there was theological freight. Behind it, because the Old Testament declared a curse upon anyone who hung on a tree. So in the Jewish mind, the concept of a crucified Messiah was in utter contradiction. I recently heard one pastor compare it to the phrase, godly child abuser. And yet, here is Paul claiming that the man who died naked on a garbage heap outside of Jerusalem, pinned to a stake and drowning in his own blood, was not only the Messiah and the singular hope of salvation, but God himself. This is either shockingly ridiculous, or it is redemptively surprising. You can never predict it. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. They did not arrive at it on their own estimation. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And here we are. By the way, if you are here this morning and... You don't identify as a Christian. Uh, First, you you are not alone in this room. And we are so glad that you are here. But we want you to know, this is what we Christians believe. Unembarrassingly, we worship a Palestinian Jew who was the Lord of glory. He was not a mere prophet or teacher or sage, but God incarnate. And he bore upon himself the curse of our sin at Calvary and buried it in the ground beneath the weight of his mercy. And he has risen again with all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's the most amazing and intriguing person you will ever know. He blasts through our natural anticipated categories. He doesn't fit in them. To the world, he is an oddity. But to his people, he is chosen and precious. And while we're here, it would be useful to note that there there are at least 1.5 billion people on the world who continue to find Paul's proclamation in this text to be completely offensive. I have in mind particularly the Muslim people who are made in the image of God, but Surah one twelve three of the Quran reads, Allah neither begets nor is he begotten. And Surah 4.171 says the Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah, So believe in Allah and His messengers and say not three, cease. It is better for you. Allah is only one God. Far is it removed from His transcendent majesty that He should have a son. Well, Paul and the believers gathered around the world to worship this morning disagree. God's transcendent majesty is perfectly displayed In His Son. This is what Hebrews 1 says long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He's not just a mere prophet. Whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through whom He also created the world. Listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He bears is more excellent than theirs. So John writes in 1 John Five, God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no life apart from Him. And so we stand before Jews and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and people who go by the name Christian but find no amazement or wonder at the carpenter from Nazareth. And with Paul, we unashamedly say, Jesus is the Son of God. Come find life in Him. Come be humbled by His scandalous mercy. Paul himself had to overcome the offense of this proclamation. That's another thing we find in these verses that is surprising. Almost as surprising as the message itself is the fact the man who was preaching it was its chief opponent. Look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Is not this the man? You can hear the surprise in their voice. Yes, it's exactly that man. It's, it's the man who refers to himself as the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. It's the man who confesses in Galatians 1.13 that he violently persecuted the church of God and sought to destroy it. The Paul's Life was turned upside down by the one who appeared to him on the Damascus road. His entire world view shifted. A, a crucified and risen Savior became precious to him. He relocated his boast from outside of himself and placed it in Christ and lived to proclaim him. And here he is boldly declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. His his question that he asked in verse 5 of this chapter, Who are you, Lord? has been decisively answered. This is what God does. And no one, no one could have anticipated it. I recently read a fascinating conversion account by a lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield and Stereotypically, Rosaria would have been the least likely individual to become a Christian. She was a lesbian English professor at Syracuse University who focused on feminist studies and would write journalistic exposés of the religious right. And in her book, uh, which is titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she talks about how she encountered the risen Jesus. And she speaks of the the kind of upheaval that coming to Christ meant for her, similar to the experience of the Apostle Paul. She writes, in the pages that follow, I share what happened in my private world through what Christians politely call conversion. This word, conversion, is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter. Impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. This is what conversion is like. It is dangerous business. It appropriately turns your life upside down. Or rather, right side up. Pastor Keith helped us last week look at conversion and what it entails, what it means to repent of our sin and turn to God. I appreciate the title of Rosaria's book, but the truth is we are all unlikely converts. If you were to survey our life apart from Christ and extrapolate the data, the only direction that line would end up in is in hell. We need radical grace. And surprisingly, God delights to give it. Conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Of Rosaria, Champagne, Butterfield, and our own conversion teach us that no one is beyond the reach of grace. God's arm is not too short to save. Do you have a family member who appears to be the furthest away from Christ possible? You have a friend or neighbor who shuts down every conversation you attempt to have about their faith? Do you have teenage or young adult children who seem to want nothing to do with the things of God? Our text tells us that no one is hopelessly lost because Jesus is the Son of God. He just might surprise you yet. This brings us to the second surprise in our text. That resurrection power is perfected in crucified weakness. Verse 22 just informed us that Saul grew more and more powerful or that he increased all the more in strength. And Luke is speaking about his ability to persuasively present and defend the gospel. But there is a paradox to this power because then we are immediately confronted with the realities of weakness. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is a memorable scene from the book of Acts. It often makes its way into cartoon versions of this story. Or more classically felt board figures in Sunday school class. Uh, But it's normally presented as as a victory for the good guys. You know, in the heat of danger. This brave believer makes a narrow escape. And Indiana Jones music is playing in the background as Paul is lowered over the wall. But when Paul looks back on his life. He does not remember this experience fondly. This is a low point. In 2 Corinthians 11, he is forced in the position of having to defend his ministry and apostleship, but ironically, he lists all the things that make him feel weak. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, Often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. End of chapter. So Paul lists stonings, And beating shipwrecks and a multitude of dangers and hardships. But his crowning illustration, the way that he concludes his list is the time he needed to escape in a basket. What's happening here? Well, D.A. Carson helps to explain this. He says, probably it was the event that shattered whatever residual pride still lurked in the proud heart of Saul the Pharisee. He had set out for the city of Damascus with the avowed intent of rounding up Christians. He left the city not as the hunter, but as the hunted. This toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, like a savior lowered like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo he had displaced. The power that verse 22 attributes to Paul did not place him on a stage with notoriety or on a tour with a book signing, but ducking down at the bottom of a fish crate. His first evangelistic attempts were not met with a City awakened to the cause of Christ, but with an angry mob and a target on his back. And afterward, he attempts to meet up with his fellow believers, but his past reputation precedes him and they stay away from him in fear, doubting whether or not he's really a Christian. What's wrong? Nothing is wrong. The Lord whom he serves had said in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, we've titled this series A New Normal, and we've done so because we want to experience God's normal for us, and we believe he has clearly communicated that to us in his word. But here's something that we should receive this morning. It is normal for Christians to experience disappointment and failure. It's normal to encounter weakness. What do we mean by weakness? We mean the things that highlight our deficiencies, they underline not our capabilities, but our limitations, our average humanity They're the things about us that people look at and are not impressed. In fact, they probably cause disappointment and regret in us and in those around us. You have that in mind? If nothing comes to mind, you probably have too high of an opinion of yourself than you should. (laughs) Where do you feel like a failure? Where do you feel deficient? What frustrates you about yourself? Where do you feel that you have been wounded by life or wounded others? Is it in your marriage? You struggle with communication, you struggle with planning, you struggle with expressing care? Your husband who can't seem to talk to his wife without making her cry. Or a wife who feels like she is unable to live up to the expectations of her husband. Is it in your parenting? Your mother who finds herself at the end of her rope almost every day. Or a father who, no matter how hard he tries, he can't seem to gain entry into the world of his teenage kids. Is it in your ministry, in your attempts to reach out to others, you have hit the wall of your own limitations and fears? Are you seeking to care for people who are upset about your time and availability? They don't seem to appreciate the fact that you only have 24 hours in the day like everyone else. Is it in your job, your finances, at school, in your friendships, your personal pursuit of the Lord... Perhaps it 's something about your physical makeup or your health, or the way that you are put together as an individual, your weight, your appearance, your emotional temperament. where do you feel weak? What makes you feel like you are out of your depth? Paul had his list. We all have ours. The experience of weakness in and of itself is not a surprise. But what is surprising is that God uses weakness as an opportunity for grace. Weakness is the route that mercy takes. And so Paul says in the next chapter over, Second Corinthians 12, God said to me in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. On the map of mercy, the, the path to resurrection passes through crucifixion. Or put another way, God gives grace to the humble. Sufficient and sustaining grace. Our moments of weakness serve to highlight the capable power of Christ. And they direct us toward Him as our source of strength. They, they turn us away from the ever-present temptation toward self-sufficiency, and they, they place us in a position of utter dependence upon our Lord. Do you feel unsure of yourself? Well, good, because you're exactly where God wants you. Do your weaknesses aggravate you, or do they humble you? And cause you to be satisfied in Jesus, the perfect man. A chapter from Paul Miller's excellent book is titled Learning to be Helpless. And in it, he writes To become more like Jesus is to feel increasingly unable to do life, increasingly wary of your heart. Paradoxically, you get holier while you're feeling less holy. The very thing you were trying to escape, your inability, Opens the door to prayer and then grace. Oh, God has opened the door wide through your weakness because He wants to deliver to you sustaining grace. He redeems our circumstances and our regrets for His merciful purposes. There's a song by Jason Gray that says, In the hands of the Redeemer, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Being lowered over a wall in a basket isn't wasted. Singleness doesn't go to waste. It's a redeemed circumstance. So don't be hopeless. God is redemptively surprising, and you don't yet know what He's accomplishing through the very circumstance you feel like you need to escape. He's working his purposes in painful yet promising ways. So hold on to his strength. It sets up our final surprise in our text. Peace travels through suffering. And comfort comes from fear. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Luke concludes this section by stating that the universal church all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, everywhere the gospel has reached so far, is experiencing peace. Now let's remember how we got here. In chapter 6, Stephen is arrested. In chapter 7... He is executed. In chapter 8, the church is scattered because of persecution. At the beginning of chapter 9, Saul is still breathing out threats of murder against God's people. This certainly is a peculiar path to peace. You know, one of the benefits of having a GPS device when you're Traveling is its ability to provide alternative routes. So if you get off track, it will recalculate and find some other way to get to your destination. But, but every now and then, it, it, it'll, it'll get confused and find some weird backwoods route that doesn't quite work. You know, one time, Rebecca and I were on a trip and we were trying to find a, a Chick-fil-A and, and it, it took us on some dirt road with no trespassing signs that were decorated by bullet holes. <laughs> We were not comfortable in that moment. That was, a, that was a glitch in the machine, a mistake. Is that what's happening here? Is this a glitch? Certainly God could have provided an alternative route, one that allows the church to pass around suffering in the way that we might avoid traffic during rush hour. But instead, he has them pass right through suffering in order to arrive at peace. And this, too, is normal for God's people. Do you find yourself on the road of suffering, like we sang about? The road is difficult, it is dangerous but the destination is surprising. And so again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is a distinctively Christian message. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. God is not after our shame. He is after our hope. So resist the temptation to be hopeless on the day of suffering. Verse 31 gives a picture of the the church enjoying the hand and favor of God. The church is growing. It is is being built up. Believers are being added to their number. There is a, a tone of prosperity and encouragement. And no one could have predicted this if you're reading the book of acts for the first time with with no prior knowledge and you open up to the beginning of chapter 9 you could never have guessed that this is where it would land it's a twist in the story an unexpected ending what kind of narrative are you writing for your life do you do that mentally You script out the next several pages. Or maybe you have your story written out to the end and you're convinced it doesn't look good. Don't do that. This text informs us that we can't do that. God shows up and changes that narrative in wonderful and beautiful ways. He loves to reverse fallen trajectories. What's still breathing out threats for you? Is your infertility still breathing out threats? Come speak to Alan and Danette after the service and a dozen other couples in this church to experience God changing their story. Is it your health? Your lack of recognition at work? Your unsaved family members? Your depression or anxiety? Is your spouse breathing out threats of murder against you? What is threatening you this morning? God could alter that course and change the direction in a moment. What is Jesus doing in your life? How is he about to surprise you with peace? It's a question you can't answer for yourself, but be ready for it. This doesn't mean it's always... A happy ending, humanly speaking, or that there are no troubles encountered along the way. No, we've learned that power is perfected in weakness and and peace travels through suffering. So along with your Savior, you'll experience crucifixion in one form or another. But it is always for redemption. How is God redemptively surprising you? How, How is he about to surprise Lakeview Christian Center? or the church among the nations. You can never predict what God will do. You know, culturally speaking, there there's much that discourages me today. The days ahead do not look good for the American church. Saul may not be ravaging the church, but consumerism is ravaging the church and postmodernism is ravaging the church and moral indifference is ravaging the church and inconsistency and busyness is ravaging the church. But at no point in history, and certainly not now, do we have reason to be hopeless. What is God going to do this century for his people? Just you wait. Wait. <laughs> there's anything that we learn from this text, we learn that he loves to turn things around. Eric, you can go on back up here. John Piper says, in a way that only Piper can, Jesus Christ is not dead, and he is not distant, and he is not silent, and he is not weak, and he is not uninterested in the world and in the progress of his mission and in your life. He is alive. And what he began to do in his earthly life, he is continuing to do. That's why we're reading the book of Acts. He's full of surprises for churches and for nations and for families and for individual people. Amen. What does it look like? What's the proper response to God's redemptively surprising activity? Well, this verse informs us. Walking in the fear of of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied fear and comfort seems like an oxymoron right it's another paradox another surprise here's what I think it means stand in awe of God's sovereign power to reroute the path ...of nations and peoples. In other words... ...walk in the fear of the Lord. Never presume upon His wise providence... ...or His omnipotent ability... ...to affect kings and kingdoms... ...or living rooms and classrooms. Worship the God who does stuff like Acts 9. Behold and be amazed at the God who is our God. And second, experience the assurance of God's ability to specifically target you in your circumstances and care for your heart. Put another way, receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Receive that this morning. He is not distant He's not disengaged. He's not disinterested. He's present to comfort, present to affect change, present to heal where brokenness has harmed you, present to sustain and perfect his power in the midst of weakness. He's present to surprise. So let's be encouraged as a church. Let's be a hope filled people. Amen.
1: Oh, wow. Evan, that was just deeply effective deeply meaningful I know for all of us Um, I have more to contemplate here and more questions to help me discover what's inside of me than I have space to write down here Eric's going to close us in a song but how how do we take this with us because I think it sits in a real real space in our lives hopefully there's not anybody here who can't find this is finding us in the cross here. This was just the impression I had. He'd used the word receiving here at the end. Hearing is not the same as receiving. We all heard a great message. But hearing is not the same as receiving. Receiving includes these things. It includes agreement. So I need to come into agreement with what was said. It was very insightful. I think most of us would lose the argument with this message, wouldn't we? But I need to agree with it. I need to say, yes, God, that is how you work. And yes, you are at work. Secondly, I I need to surrender. We're experiencing this in spaces of our life where there's a little bit of something to fight for. There's familiarity in our way and our thoughts. I need to agree, I need to surrender whatever space and category I found myself in, Lord, I'm I'm just going to surrender in this space to you. And third, I need to have faith in that category now. I think if you don't do those three things and you really didn't receive this word, agree with the word, surrender to what God has shown and have faith in the future that God is at work in our lives. Let's let's stand up together. And let's let those things soak into us as Eric closes us in song and let the Lord speak in those places. Father, oh Lord, thank you for the seed planted in our lives. Lord, the great hope we have is when your word is planted in our lives. Lord, it's not just the moment of planting, it's the, it's the future coming behind this moment. Lord, it's the day when that seed begins to sprout and it begins to bear fruit in our lives. So Lord, I thank you for anticipating the fruit from this word to us. But Lord, in my, in my categories, so Lord, for I was in this message a bunch of times. Lord, right now, I, I don't want to resist you. Lord, I want to agree with you. You are at work in these ways in my life. Lord, I agree with you. And Lord, I surrender to what you're doing. Lord, you are at work in my weaknesses, perfecting your strength. Lord, you are finding a route, an avenue of grace to travel into my life through these moments that I've been begging you to get rid of. Lord, I surrender to your ways. Lord, I surrender to how you do things in my life. And God, I, Lord, I emerge from this meeting with faith, Lord. Not just dwelling in the difficulty, but faith for my future because you are at work in these ways in my life. So Lord, as we sing this song, Lord, bring our hearts into agreement. Bring our will into surrender. And fill us with faith, Lord, to receive this word in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at His voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on His throne. Come, let
3: us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing
2: can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Teach the one who knows all things Who can fathom all his wondrous
3: deeds Behold our God Seated on his throne Come let us adore him Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. We adore You,
2: Lord, who has felt the nails upon His hands guilt of sinful man.
3: God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, save
2: God, you are reigning above our lives, Lord. You are the place where we place our hope. You are who we trust in. We trust in your story of salvation. We're included in, Lord, and we want to give you glory with our lives. So we trust in you. Lord, surprise us this week. Lord, as folks were listening to your word and they were thinking of things, that they wish were different. Lord, I pray that you would answer prayers. Lord, surprise your people with grace that is undeserved. We pray in your Son's name. made all this possible. Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.